Hello and welcome back to That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. It feels good to be back. It's been about six months since I've spoken into this microphone on my own in this room to you guys. I'm not on my own, am I? You're all listening to this. So yes, hello. And uh, if you have come back after listening to the last 86 episodes, then thank you for sticking with us. And if you found this podcast in the interim period while I've been uh, sort of having some downtime, then welcome. And I hope you're enjoying digging through the archive of all the conversations um, I suppose this is a new series in the sense. Um, and if you're listening to this in two years' time and you're wondering what I'm on about because this is just ticked on from the next episode, uh, essentially I've taken about six months off to get everything in order, have a bit of a break, and work out what I'm what I'm doing. And uh, and I'm back. And some some things have changed. Um, in fact, lots of things have changed. So I took a break from the Isolated Drums Series 2, um, I suppose I bet. Uh, I don't know if any, if if uh, you guys have listened to the very first episode, which is very out of date now, actually. But I'll I'll just reintroduce what I am and what this is about before we dig into to the episode proper. Um, so essentially, I, I I'm I have a a thing called All You Need Is Drums, and All You Need Is Drums is a, uh, a kind of a recording studio and a remote recording drum service and one of the things i enjoy doing is re-recording um all of the beatles drums so that's ringo mainly obviously and uh, occasionally it's paul <laughs> um, and i'm on a mission to re-record all of those drums and uh, i'm giving them away for free on my website all you need is drums.com um, and i'm recording them to click so that you can use them in your songs you can just listen to them you can play along to them you can make cover versions with them you can just have them or just check in when you want to see them and or hear them and just sort of have a bit of fun with them whatever you want um there's loads of information on the website about all of that kind of stuff um and one of the the things that i've sorted out over the last six months was i realized that the all you need is drums uh umbrella if you like was not covering uh, it's very, you know, obviously it's very Beatles heavy and that's a facet of my personality that I, I really enjoy. Um, but I do a lot of other work outside of that. So I've decided to reignite the uh, Joe Montague drums uh, Instagram. So I am Joe Montague. I don't do a very good job of telling you guys who I am. Um, so I've reignited the Joe Montague drums podcast. Uh, podcast. It's not blooming podcast. What are you on about, you idiot? Uh, Instagram page. And I'm not going to cut that out because this is warts and all. Um, so you can go to at Joe Montague Drums, uh, Montague is M-O-N-T-A-G-U-E, um, and see what I get up to at the studio and what I get up to when I'm on the road and the other sort of general things that I do that are to do with music but not specifically Beatles related. But I'm going to keep the All You Need Is Drums, the at All You Need Is Drums Instagram content uh, very much about Beatles and all the, that stuff that I love. So that's kind of what I've been working out over the last six months. And I have been busy. I've been re speaking to podcast guests. Got some great episodes coming up for you. Um, I've got Paul Butler, Fran Ashcroft, uh, some BBC broadcast engineers that were, have been working over the last four or five decades. Um, some really, really incredible episodes that I'm excited to share with you. Um, so I haven't been completely slacking. <laughs> um, the... Uh, the other thing that is quite exciting for the podcast is I have a 
a sponsor in a sense who has come on board and that's what today's episode is all about um anyway so i didn't want to get into it in terms of money because that's you know sometimes when you're doing these things it's not doesn't always need to be about money so i've been buying things off sam at make noise pro audio for quite a few years now and we were talking and decided it would be a an interesting sort of collaboration in a sense a partnership that we could have together where uh, my drum session services and that kind of things i do he can put them to his followers and obviously he deals in used gear and often very interesting quirky gear and that's the kind of thing that interests a lot of people that listen to this podcast, myself included, obviously, given that I buy loads of stuff from him. <laughs> um, so I thought he would, A, be a really interesting person to talk to, um, and B, be a great person to put in front of you guys regularly. Obviously, he's sponsoring the podcast, um, so I will be talking about the stuff that he's got going on. Um, I mean, literally, just I'm just looking at his Instagram feed now, and he's put a Juno up this morning i think it was uh u87 there is a sony c48 that he's got for sale um some c414s there's a ssl little ssl desk um some channel strips there is a beautiful alice console which i am very tempted by if i had didn't have one already but anyway he's got loads of cool stuff i'm i'm in shopping mode now <laughs> he's got loads of cool stuff and i think it would be really cool to sort of tell you guys all about it every week and uh um anyway just it was a good collaboration and a good partnership between us so the conversation today is all with sam um and he talks about the beginnings of make noise pro audio in 2015 and how he kind of ended up selling so they concentrate on on basically everything from modern things uh, vintage obscure things um and that's outboard gear microphones synths audio interfaces uh, drum machines consoles monitors amps anything you can think of to do with studio they deal he deals with it's only him on his own um and he gives a really honest reflection on what the used gear market is like um, obviously it's a little volatile and it's kind of just interesting so I found it from a consumer point of view an, a really interesting conversation to see what's kind of what people are buying what people are into um, the pricing of all of this kind of stuff because it seems to be mental at the moment um, and Sam's got really fair pricing so I wanted to know what his thoughts on that kind of stuff were um, so that's what this episode is all about um, and it's first episode back, and I will be here every week, and I'm really excited. So thank you for sticking with it, and um, welcome back, and we'll get straight into it now after all of this waffling I've done. Here is my conversation with Sam from Make Noise Pro Audio. My name's Sam. I run Make Noise Pro Audio. I've been running for two years officially, I guess, as a company, um, but been doing things on the go for five or six years. Um, sort of of Make Noise, as Make Noise, and then sort of just started out selling things on eBay and, and reverb and stuff like that. And nowadays it's kind of moved into a proper business along the same lines of studio care and funky junk, I guess, but for used equipment guess in a nutshell that is my noise i mean it did 
just seemed to appear out of nowhere. Um, may, I mean, I'm sure Instagram had a huge hand in that. But what was the um, what was the very first sort of iteration? Like, what was the first bit of gear that you decided to put on eBay? Uh, it's quite a funny story, and I have told this in the past when people have asked. Um, so, funnily enough, uh, I think my dad wanted me to sell a load of stuff on eBay for him. He, had, he used to be an old town engineer back in the day, and he had oh, loads cool. of mics and all sorts. So uh, I think I'd just kind of been doing that for him. And then I worked for a PA company for a long time, and I was around gear all day and, you know, kid in a sweet shop sort of thing, really. And I went to cash converters, I think, and I found like three mics for 100 quid, like a couple of SM58s and stuff like that. And they were like 20, 30 quid each. I was like, these surely worth more than that and just put them on ebay and made like 10 20 quid on each mic and it was it was kind of a bit of a side hustle really i mean that's quite a common phrase to use these days um but back then it was you know oh great i can get a bit of extra money then maybe i can upgrade my monitors at home or something you know a bit like a a trade up sort of thing where you start with i don't know anything can you, you trade up and get something better it all kind of started like that and i was also really interested in production gear like drum machines and synths and things but i could never really afford them as a kid so as things started snowballing it was microphones rack gear synths drum machines and it because i could just go and grab stuff off the shelf and i had people around me that could help me fix stuff and learn how to fix stuff it just kind of naturally you know it kind of went in that direction because i I used to write music and produce music and mix and things and i was never really that good at it so i kind of found that my passion was more in the process and in the gear than it was actually trying to do music as such so yeah and in a funny kind of way it, it's it always has been about the gear in a romantic kind of way and it's it i've been very lucky to kind of push it forwards and actually put care and attention into it as a business and for obviously for other people to to really relate to and, and offer a good service to so it's it's massively humbling to be able to do that to this scale it does I can only see it getting bigger really I, I agree, uh, and it, but it does come across in the way that you put yourself across on online that you you know what you're talking about, but it's not in a uh, an authoritative way. It's in a quite a almost a, a slightly laid back, honest way, which I think is is great for a, from a shop's point of view because we all want to know that we're buying off somebody that's that's um, really honest, but more in a sort of. The, the love comes across, I think, <laughs> rather than sort of a, a big load of gear nerdery of I know better than you. It it's no, doesn't totally. come across like that at all. And that's the thing, you know, I, I haven't especially had the background of a lot of the customers I deal with, you know. If it's people that have worked with lots of artists for lots of years and, you know, they're not particularly well-known or it's somebody that is really well-known, I can't tell them how to do things or how to use things because you find that naturally anyway. And I think there's a lot of a lot of information out there that he's trying to tell people how to use things and what mic to use and what preamp to use. And that's all irrelevant. And that's just opinions. And I'm not really a, a person to, to really give opinions that strongly. So if somebody asks a question, I'll give them a technical sort of reply or thoughts on, you know, I want to use this preamp or this preamp, or, you know, technically this is what's different or, you know. So it's, I think that's the, the difference. And there are other salespeople, shall we say that we all be a little bit more traditional in how they push things forward. You know, it's all a bit of spiel and trying to trying to write a story about a bit of gear and stuff. And I don't think that's important to people because if someone's interested in a piece of gear, they already know what it is in most cases, especially in the pro audio world. There's not people buying two, three, four grand preamps and EQs that don't know what they're buying. So it's 
again, it's a fortunate market that you can't really bullshit people too much. And yeah, it's it's generally quite straightforward. It's it's quite nice. You don't have to put the legwork in. You're not a car salesman running out on the forecourt and kind of come back. <laughs> I think that's that's right. This. <laughs> well, yeah, well that's it. But the the way the way the world is the way the world is, you know, we I think we're similar ages and and you know running businesses at similar times the sort of way that marketing works although there's a lot of similarities to to the old methods the way that marketing is now is very different and having clear slightly arty shots of gear <laughs> is yeah. is a the, the, they market themselves you know they're, they're made to look pretty for a reason and and like you say most people know what they're looking at um so you don't you know you, it's fortunate that somebody can can have your gear that you're selling presented with them on a daily basis just on their newsfeed. Yeah, that's it. And I think a big part of it as well is just it's just being organic. As I say, I mean, when I first started, I worked for a, a PA company and met hundreds of freelancers and engineers and all sorts. So it was only a matter of time before people would spot what I had down in my little corner of the room on my test bench and stuff and ask to find them stuff or sell them stuff. And as the years go on, those sort of maybe, you know, core people it's kind of snowballed into more people and more people and it, it it snowballs very quickly when you start multiplying the numbers of people you've sold to or bought to or spoken to so yeah I think marketing didn't really play much of a part it still really hasn't up to this day really it's I don't really class social media as marketing because although you're putting things out there I'm not actually really paying to put things <laughs> out there it's it is just people sharing stuff with their mates you know I, I guess some of the gear that gets posted up is based on my tastes a little bit more. Maybe some people relate to that. But as you say, you know, if you're a gear slut, you can't really, or a gear nerd, you can't really, you know, get away from looking up photos of, of gear. It's one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. So I think that helps. So from both aspects, that you know, it works It works nicely. There's lots of confidence built up with people you don't know, which is also really nice. Yeah. Recommendations and such, it kind of, it really helps. And it's Was been really nice, moment- I say. That, was there a moment where you you kind of thought this is this is happening now? You know, presumably it went from from sort of ticking over gently to to maybe your first significant sale to not significant in a monetary way, but to to somebody that you knew was a, a heavyweight. Or you know, was there a particular moment where you went, you know, wow, this has really got legs? This thing. Funnily enough, I, I always remember this in the back of my mind. I was going to IKEA one day with my wife. Um, this must have been four years ago maybe so pre full company but still you know I sold a lot of gear in my first year without knowing I was a business and what that you know what that meant with VAT and tax and all this lot so fast forward a few years after that I'd kind of got a grasp of how to do invoices and all the boring stuff and yeah my wife looked at me and she said do you really think you can you know buy and sell this gear and actually make a living out of it and it was I kind of straight away didn't really even think about it. I was like, I I think so. Like, it's not ready yet. You know, I'm still working full time for another job. This was obviously pre-COVID as well. So things were very much simple and there was no reason why it wouldn't work. So that's kind of the the main, that was a nice motivation because it wasn't wasn't really a doubt from her that that kind of made me answer the question, but it was a realisation that if I have to do this was kind of how my brain saw it could I make it work and it was a yes so yeah I don't really I don't think I really measure the success well, I use success lightly but you know I didn't really deal with a certain person or a certain bit of gear that kind of changed things it was more of a personal development that 
I'm a kid that's never run a business. I've just worked for other people up to the age of near enough 30. Um, it was a very daunting thing to to go out on your own, really. So, yeah, I think it was. it's more personal goals that kind of motivate the output of the business because that's important, I think. And I say a lot of people don't know that it is just me on a day-to-day basis that runs Make Noise, which is... I don't really want to put across that, you know, it's Sam make noise, you know what I mean? That's not that's not ever been the direction, but I think people appreciate that it's a bit more personal and that they do speak to the same person all the time. So, yeah, I think that the personal effort and the personal sort of achievements along the way are sort of how the outcome happens in a long, long roundabout way. I, I love that. I think it will resonate with a lot of people listening and... I something I've found in similar discussions with people that I work with um, and it's particularly reassuring in people who are who I work with who are doing really really well that everybody has had those moments where they have to take a leap of faith so whether that was leaving Mm. your previous work or you know there was some regular work I had on that I I had to leave which was a huge chunk of income that I went right I'm not doing that anymore because I want to focus solely on on being a full-time just playing and that's all you know I only want to do things I want to do and everybody I've spoken to who has made a success of themselves has had a leap of faith like that and it's a you know it's, it's testament to to your you know your courage and and your determination that you you made it and, and you're making it work yeah totally I mean the real leap of faith was was COVID to be quite honest there was um you know don't need to dig too deep into it a lot of people came out of it quite badly a lot of it came out of it quite quite well um, I'm quite fortunate that I was working full time for the other company and struggling to kind of fit enough hours in for make noise anyway. So when that hit and the initial shock of, you know, we are locked in, but we can still kind of run a business. We can still do things. We can, you know, still p- go to the post office or at least get parcels picked up. Like that was a very simple realisation that, okay, now I can use this time well to do what I need to do. So I spent that that rest that nine months of the year really hammering away and kind of helping people at home set up their own setups and because obviously commercial studios were closed and no one could really go anywhere so that was really nice I met a lot of people quite quickly in that short amount of time and also that was the point where I thought I actually need to maybe think about this as a business because what if I don't have a job tomorrow I need to have an income so yeah I thought I'd start the company properly even though I wasn't really meant to at the time I was still working for somebody else it's all a little bit grey um so did that and we got round to the next year and the next bar in the works was having a child so I found out we were pregnant <laughs> around that in that period of me starting the company and stuff and it was all you know it was just it was backup plans as well it was thinking of the future and what happens tomorrow if I don't have a job and, and that so it very much got spurred on and then when my son was born that was quite hard to be a full-time dad going potentially back into a full-time job to also run a full-time company so even being a dad is a full-time job regardless of everything else around that. So something had to give and it definitely wasn't going to be my two babies, let's be honest. <laughs> so yeah, the job had to go. And I think, oh, when did I leave? August 20, what are we on now? 23. Yeah, 18 months or so ago was the uh, when I actually left my full-time job. So a lot of people probably find that quite surprising because Mate Noise has been relatively active for three, four years before that anyway. And the consistency didn't really change. So it was a nice relief to kind of really be able to put my foot on the gas then with make noise and also get to spend good quality time at home with newborn son and things. So 
yeah, there's there's lots of little, I say little things, there's lots of big things that have made changes, but equally there's been lots of small things that have made just as much of an impact, I guess. I love a positive story. It's great. No, totally. It's, it's, it's amazingly, it's amazingly humbling. And I'm very, very thankful how things have worked out. But in, in the same way, I've worked hard to make it work at the same time. So between those two things, kind of rubbing shoulders, I think that is the reason it's, it's worked out nicely. And, you know, there's still room to go. I don't, I haven't seen the ceiling yet. So there's plenty, there's plenty of things to, to explore and do and looking what else is around. There isn't many one man bands kind of doing what I'm trying to do. So if it does expand to, to staff and more people, you know, wall your oyster, I guess, in that <laughs> sense. But do you want to keep things true at all at all stages? And the, the personal touch and all those things really matter. Of course. So it's uh, it's always calculated. It's gotta be the, the right move. I want to talk about the home studio market and how obviously that's affected you massively and, and COVID had a, had a big part in that, but this sort of project studio, sort of home studio, project studio and glorified project studio, which is kind of what I call what I have. Um, essentially a studio that doesn't have a big mixing console and just relies on sort of pre's and a few choice pieces of gear. Um, how was that? How have you seen that market develop in terms of what you are selling and how people are interacting with you? Well, I think in recent years, things have really changed so that the entry point's obviously a lot lower for people to get into music, but there's also guys that have definitely come from and girls that have come from that smaller background that are doing major label sort of work at the same time. So big, I'm a big fan of an artist called Jordan Rakai and a lot of his early stuff was done in some of these smaller studios and you know it's it's great to to know that there's there's no real difference you don't need to go to a big commercial studio to to do the major work or the major label work or whatever sort of target you're hitting but it, yeah it's, it's it's cool there's lots of guys that are really doing great stuff and it's i think it's a fine balance between really caring what they're doing having a good eye for gear but also knowing what they're doing with the gear regardless if it's high-end or budget stuff so i think as as long as you know you kind of know what you're doing the output has been extremely high from that sort of space really and it's just nice to to meet people that are that they're aware that they can do good work and not need a massive studio or massive amounts of gear so it's again that's nice to support that end of the market as well because you could just go and do high-end gear and and just cater for that but at the end of the day that some of these younger dudes are just starting out there's a couple of that i can really think off the top of my head that i think will do really well in five to ten years and i know i've got a customer for life because i helped him you know i gave him a free xlr cable because he didn't know what an xlr <laughs> cable was 10 years ago you know it's one of those so it's yeah yeah, yeah it's hitting every angle of customer really and yeah Hopefully, I didn't deviate too much from the original question. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, th- I think essentially it's just interesting that the quality of of equipment that is out there now is very high, and there's a lot of it. So, you know, back in the '60s, which is kind of the era I have most or a lot of interest in, you know, there was not a lot of, of sort of mainstream equipment. You know, you got the Poltex and Fairchild and all that kind of stuff, and then a lot of homemade equipment. And nowadays the market's flooded with so many different brands. And um, the 
by and large, a lot of it is fairly high quality, although it ranges mm. in price. And the difference sonically is is slight, but you know, I would say it's meaningful considering the amount of expensive gear I've got around me. <laughs> yeah, but I, I would say you know, but yeah, again, by and large, I think that that most of it is sounds fairly high quality, and I I think you know you can go and buy a preamp or a channel strip and then you can get a great sound going in and then you can also adjust anything further with with plugins because plugins have got a fairly high quality too and I, th I think previous to this a lot of people perhaps in your position or gear manufacturers were concerned that plugins were going to um, decimate the outboard business and actually I think there's been I think what I was pressing at was I think there's been a reimagining of that where somebody might come along with perhaps they've got a thousand pounds to to make something cool in their studio, you know, to buy some gear or whatever. So they they end up spending five or six hundred pounds on a nice piece of outboard gear and a nice a nice enough microphone, and then you know then they've got a fairly decent setup going in, and then there's some great plugins that they can use whilst they're in there, and it's actually become a bit of a marriage as an opposed to an opposition <laughs> no totally and i think things have definitely changed over the years as well i mean if you think from up to 90s early 2000s studios were still analog relatively speaking there was maybe pro tools and, and digital recorders and things but th most things were still analog at that point so it's kind of it's very much not as popular i guess in every sense of recording and mixing as you say a lot of people mix in the box so a large amount of analog that does get sold through remote noise is predominantly tracking gear so it is preamps channel strips eqs compressors and then for mixing it's people aren't really filling racks full of stuff to run back out to do full analog mixes anymore so it's it's possibly moving more on the lines of uh mix bus sort of stuff drum bus sort of things and just choice things to kind of get the flavor or the hands-on feel with that and it's i guess the whole hybrid world is that's kind of how you could describe it as well is it's still relevant in in tracking senses because it's nice to get the sound you want on the way in and without going into the analog versus digital debate electronics sound better than ones and zeros in a nutshell so i think you can get if you know recording is all about the feeling and, and the song and the moment so if you can enhance that and get that in then i think that's why analog gear hasn't gone away in that respect but when it comes to mixing you know if you can sit on a train with a macbook and do what you need to and do unlimited revisions without having to run everything back through a console and pulling up all your recall sheets and all that like you know it's the modern day at the end of the day so things have to move on and have to change but people are just changing how they're using the gear a little bit more i, I would say and that's that's kind of the main difference but yeah you know gear is so much better when i first started making music uh, 15 16 17 years ago it was maybe Reason 2.5, Cubase 3 sort of era. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it was very powerful and you had plugins and you could do all sorts. But even, but back then there wasn't really the training to teach you how to to apply that. So I'm just a 13, 14 year old kid trying to make music with no tuition, essentially. You know, my old man was an engineer for years. So the, the basics of audio were there and he had desks in his house and all sorts over the years so I, I, I knew how signal flows worked but going into straight into digital was yeah there wasn't a youtube tutorial to tell you how to do it there wasn't uh, an influencer on instagram or tiktok telling you that there are ways to compress your snare and there was none of that so i think that 
there's lots of things that have worked hand in hand. But yeah, the gear is really high quality, but also the ability to share how to use it and how to make the most out of it is so high nowadays. It's it's definitely oversaturated at the same point, but it's definitely very easy to make great music very cheaply. I think it's, I, it's good... all about learning your tools, really, learning your craft and knowing how to use your tools. That's it's as simple as that, and obviously a bit of talent goes a long way, but. I had a good, an interesting conversation with Ivana Manley uh, on the podcast about a very similar thing. Obviously, she's coming from a manufacturing point of view, and I, I know you've sold on a lot of Manley gear. And it's she was talking about how Universal Audio have made copies of her the equipment that, that they're making at that company, and she almost sees the plugins as being an entry into the market of of outboard gear. And, it, and it, I do find it interesting how outboard hasn't it hasn't gone away. It's still seen as, I mean, b- frankly, because it is, it's still seen as the better, um, the the sort of the better uh, sound quality that I mm. can't find the word I'm looking for. But essentially, if you can, you know, you can get a a nice preamp on Universal Audio or even Waves, and you can start using it and start experimenting with it and gain a bit of confidence with it. Then you get on your up on your Instagram and you've got something that's either a copy or something similar uh, on that's for sale and it's not enormously dear. You go, okay, you know, I've been using that for two years on on my DAW and I might actually just plump and buy one and see if it's better. And then you go, wow, it's 20, 30, 40% better and suddenly you're, <laughs> you're hooked and that's, that's you, that's, you know, you're, you're sailing yeah. down the gear river. <laughs> no, totally, but that, that's, that's a very valid point. I hadn't really thought about plugins as being the entry point, but yeah, they are. You know, you can get free plugins and, you, you know, the entry is literally nothing pretty much. Set headphones and a laptop, I guess. So yeah, it's, um, it's very true and I do, you know, people start moving then on a lot of good clones, AML or Mordio and things, that is, for a couple hundred quid, it's sort of Christmas presents for people, do you know what I mean? And then, as you say, some of these guys further down the line actually learning how to use this gear properly and then they want to get an actual Neve or an actual whatever of whatever. Yeah, so it's it's interesting actually. But And I, I, I get asked every now and then as well, if a new plug-in comes out of a bit of gear, is the price of that gear going to tank? And it's like, well, it's, it's, never, it's actually just promoting the identity of that piece of gear i mean there's a million 1176 and la2a and and those sort of plugins but also look at what are the hardest pieces of gear to acquire and the most expensive pieces of gear to acquire ironically is the hardware versions of those exact plugins so it's (laughs) it's a funny old world and just because one person moves in the box another person moves into whiteboard it's all very fluid i don't think there's ever really been any drastic changes of you know, like I get asked every now and then, do you think that one day no one will use outboard? And it's like maybe less people will use outboard, but if there's more people making music, there's going to be more people that want speakers and interfaces and microphones. That there's just another thing that is more important or is, you know, needed more than a nice high end preamp or an EQ or a reverb. Things will change and flavours will come in and out of fashion. But it's, I think, a key point I'm trying to make is. It's just keeping on top of what people are interested in, really, and seeing where things are going. Because a little bit detached from new stuff, being a used-only seller, but that's also quite useful for, for predicting what people do want, really, because, you know, distressors are massively popular. And again, I think if I look back on it, since there's been tons and tons of plugins 
everyone's kind of wanting distresses all of a sudden again. So maybe there is a little bit of a relationship in, in that as well, which is quite interesting. I can almost predict when I when you do one of your gear dumps of kind of you know, seven or eight pieces of gear on, on one, um, what do you call it, a carousel on, on Instagram, mm. I can almost predict when I click on something that it's been sold the second that you put <laughs> it up there. It, it's mm. a, there seems to be some... I can't put my finger on what it is. I'm sure you probably can. But there seems to be some pieces of gear, microphones or particular bits of outboard that you just know instantly they're going to have sold. Um, yeah. And unless you, you know, recently I bought an RE20 off you and I knew for a, a fact if I didn't email you the sec- the message the second that I saw it and say, can I reserve this till next week, that it would have just disappeared. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I think that's that's really interesting to have that angle as well, especially from coming from just selling on eBay, where you don't know the buyers. Things might go quick, they might go slow, but you don't really get any feedback on any of this. But as Instagram, Facebook, and, and now the website has become something that people check a lot, like get people saying, I'm on there every morning checking if there's new stuff. Like that's bonkers really to think that there's that that many eyes looking for things but i guess that's the fun that keeps the fun for me that i've got to try and find these things that people really want whether it is something like a distresser where there's thousands of them around but still high demand finding those you know that you're guaranteed a sale so that's but if it's something that's really obscure then that's way more interesting to try and find and i think that's a lot of the the, the, the hunt for me yeah finding the cool interesting stuff that I know people are going to be really keen to get it doesn't always sell out fast but then that's the bits that get people talking and you know just conversations happen and it's just a nice balance between what people really want but also maybe finding stuff they didn't know they wanted or didn't even know about because it's so obscure that I may have stupidly bought it because I was just interested <laughs> to try something there's a big aspect to that and yeah it's cool to to have that direct sort of not listenership, but viewership of when stuff comes in. Or is it what this, people uh, are really a, wanting? There's a couple of bits of gear that you've already, you know. There's a, there's, I think it's a Helios channel strip that you've got that, you know, you you pop, you put it online once in a while, but keep keep seeing it, and it's about six or seven grand, and it's you know way outside my price Bonkers. range. But yeah. yeah, I love I love looking at it, <laughs> and I mm. love the fact whenever it comes up, it, it it drives engagement, doesn't it? It makes me go, oh, no, great. totally. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I can see why they're useful pieces to have, and they will sell eventually. But it's uh, you know they're not going to be one of the ones that no one's going to buy a Helios when it's been online for ten minutes, are they? No, not at all. But it's, I think it's, it's buying the right stuff and showing the right stuff as well. If if you just bought and sold Yamaha HS fives, I think that sets the bar of of what you're going to sell. So sometimes it is nice to get stuff in that you know business decision is probably not a good idea spending a lot of money to buy something to to have it on the website to make it a, a small chunk on but if it's something that makes you look a bit more in a bit more reputable a bit more interesting because it's that level of stuff that you know a lot of this these bits of gear you can't just go on reverb and buy it it's it's at the angle that if you've got one you've got one and there's probably going to be very limited amounts of people that have got it but it's captive market at that point because provide you can get that bit of gear across to them somehow whether it's social media emails or whatever which the the reach is getting there which is nice it's um it makes it a little less daunting taking a, a punt on some of the really weird obscure high-end expensive everyone to see it bits of gear but yeah it's all 
it's all just gear. It's all irrelevant. It's all just <laughs> romanticising about gear. and it, Yeah, that, it's funny. No one needs gear at all. But it's, in a, yeah, maybe there's a, a bit more into it. You know, people don't like gear, just use plugins. People just use gear. <laughs> they don't need to, but it, it, must, it must help the process somewhere. Whether they just love using it or it sounds better, it's all, it's all just opinions. But yeah, it's all good fun at the end of the day. It's and it's nice fun. to keep old gear going as well. You know, all the best gear was made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, really. Especially in Europe. You know, Neumann, Sheps, uh, Bayer Dynamic, all those brands. It's just, it still works today and it's still serviceable today. So it's, that's the good stuff. That's the it's, real good stuff. Who's the um, the chap who's written that book, uh, Dan... Dan something. It's a. He's got a big hardback coffee table. Oh yeah, book. yes. I can't remember his surname though. Dan Alexander, maybe. Yes, that's the one. And he yeah. he writes an awful lot about his time in the seventies and eighties, traveling to Europe and buying up lots of uh, post-war gear and taking it back to the US. And that's essentially what that whole book is. Is him. He was one of the seemed to be one of the forerunners of of buying and selling gear in the US. Yeah, totally. Working out that the the European and Russian um, stuff was the was the gold dust essentially. Yeah, totally. But there's a funny thing as well where in, in the UK, I wouldn't say we've got an abundance of all the good old stuff like Neve and SSL. But for the size of our little island, we've definitely you know got lots. But on the the other hand, we love American gear because it's it's a bit different to what we've got as well. So it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? The amount of times we get asked for old STC ex-BBC sort of era stuff that's exactly what America and Japan want because as you say it's and again you you know all the European stuff Neumanns and AKGs that's everyone wants those but yeah it's it's definitely a sense of what's the hardest to get is what people want because it's the the idea of earning that obscure piece that's hard to find a bit like with guitars and, and things like that really it's it's just a nerdier rabbit hole I guess is there anything particular outside of perhaps the big names like Neumann um, or AKG or anything that you, anything particularly interesting that you know people want regularly or people ask for regularly? To be honest, a lot of the old British stuff is great. So the early Calrec mics, lovely. The old STC mics, lovely. Um, no, I'd, it's, it's tricky, really. I think the big dogs like AKG, Neumann, their quality has always been amazing, even to the modern day. And 87 is still built amazingly, the same as it was back in the olden days, 60s, 70s. So it's, it's, it, it's, all, it's all very different, I'll say. You know, there's, there's good brands that sound great that are built rubbish. There's stuff that's built well that sounds rubbish. It's all just, again, it goes back to preference. Um, but yeah, anything old people love, because if they think it's old... It's good and it's possibly expensive. Not always the case, but you know, you look at Reslos. I can see a pair over your shoulder. I hate to imagine how many hundreds of thousands, possibly, of those were made, but all of a sudden they've become popular because you can mod them in a way to be a sort of a, a cheaper version of a Coles forty thirty eight. It's it's not really, <laughs> particularly technically speaking, it's a totally different approach. But it's that's another you know that's. A very basic mic that probably would have gone with like a tape recorder, 
a very cheap tape recorder for pounds back in the 60s is now a mic that everybody regards as not quite holy grail but is a massively useful mic so i guess that's the flip side of stuff that isn't a neumann maybe reslo i'd say maybe the uh, some small ribbon companies definitely make some interesting stuff that because ribbons are very easy to repair and you know you've spoken to Stuart Tavner he's the guru of ribbons you know you can in theory keep a ribbon mic going forever and ever as long as the skills are there to to do so which isn't applicable with other microphones like dynamics and condensers to an extent so yeah it's it's funny it's a funny world in gear I like that it's 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 a, almost an interesting point that the specific thing with Reslo's as far as I'm aware, is there is a, a harking back to sort of the 60s, you know, there's pictures of the Beatles singing into Reslo's at the cavern, um, you know, as a live microphone. And then you've got Stuart at Exordia repairing and, and upgrading, modding these, these Reslo's and selling them on. And then, you know, I know that you, whenever you acquire Reslo's, often you send them over to Stuart to, to sort them out. Um, so it's almost this little funny industry that's grown by accident that everything's played into each other that there's this combination of of um wanting something older and seemingly better you know i'm i'm completely in this by the way you know this is exactly what i like (laughs) as a consumer um and then i know that somebody who knows what they've done aka uh, i.e stewart has done exactly what he he does with them and then you buy them off somebody reputable such as yourself and it all just suddenly it's Funny how that one little chain has, has created and all through social media and people seeing, you know, I bought them because I saw them being used and was record. Actually, I feel as though I was recommended them and then I was just part of that first initial wave of people that bought these things. And, you know, you're right, they don't sound like a Coles, but they sound, uh, they sound really high quality for a, a fairly, you know, compared to some of the brand new cheaper ribbons that are on the market now that have come along in the last year or two. Um, you know the great companies like SE or um, Audio Technica. I don't know if they do a, a ribbon, but some of these cheaper ribbons that have come out, they they certainly sound more characterful and and richer in my opinion than those microphones. I don't I don't know what it is about them, but they're no, not dissimilar think, in price range. No, I think the build qualities back in the sixties, things especially well even earlier than that. The first people to really pioneer the use of good gear was, was the BBC in the UK. So. You think in a situation where you need to record anything, it could be on location with an old Nagra tape machine, you know, at Parliament or something. You need a microphone that is built to be rained on, dropped, thrown in a case and and repeated for 10, 20, 30 years of its life because that's, you know, it needed to be built well to work. And the same with all the Neumann stuff back in the early days. That was used a lot in in radio and and in broadcast and and things like that so it's again it had to be built properly it had to withstand lots and lots of use in a a real world situation so i think that has something to do with why they're still going today and obviously i won't get too into modern production techniques but things aren't built in the same way there's obviously very high quality gear that is definitely built you know with no compromise and it's very expensive because of that and relatively speaking, that was probably the case with all the stuff for the BBC in the early days. I don't imagine an original Coles 4038 was a cheap mic because it was it was built specifically for their needs. So, you know, relatively speaking, up to modern day, it's probably no different. 
but back then you didn't get really, really, really cheap companies making, you know, copies of an SM58 because mics were built for a specific purpose. I mean, yes, you do get cheap, really, really plasticky looking things for tape machines and stuff. Um, but majority speaking, it was built to be worked hard. You know, it was it was a tool. And I think somewhat, I think that's been lost a little bit with some of the more modern offerings. It's you say it's not built as well. It's not built for the same purpose. And why would a manufacturer want a mic to last 40, 50 years when it could last five and then you go and buy the new model? I'm not saying that is what happens, but th there has to be an element of it because if you bought something once and never went back to that company again, it's you know it's quite a small industry really. It's it's not a way to make return custom work, is it really? So that's true. I think that's a very drastic difference between modern and vintage, Spe specifically microphones and high end rack gear. Because yeah, and the technology was different back then. You know, you had to build something with valves. I know you've spoken to a couple of guests about early gear, especially Malcolm Toft. Uh, was it Malcolm? Did you speak to Malcolm? Yeah, Malcolm Toft, yeah. Yeah, and, and in the early days, like valves were crucial, not just sonically, but electronically for making things work. So I think they were working with a lot harder sort of guidelines of what they could do with what they had. So things sound a certain way because that is probably the only way to, to build that with you know what you have which is why a lot of different gear from all over the world sounds slightly different because, you know, if you're building gear from Russia, Russia was one of the biggest outputs of valve manufacturing. So it's a guarantee that they're going to use valves a lot in their gear. America, I guess, in the early days with all the General Electric stuff, very similar, and Europe to an extent. But, yeah, it's 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 when you look back, it is quite interesting to try and work out why something is something against something else, if that makes sense. I think it's almost, there's an opinion uh, in there as well. And, you know, I have a, a sort of, if you take a, a a company that springs to mind is is Warm Audio. So that's got a bit of a, um, I think they've got a good reputation, but they've also got a, a reputation as being a cheap copy, which essentially it is. So if you take, um, take a, anything that's warm you say like a, a warm audio 76 an 1176 copy it's not going to sound the same as a, an 1176 but it's still going to be a compressor and it's still going to do a job mm. and it's the job yeah, exactly it's, it's still built to do the same task as the original was intended to so if you have to the sound of a piece of gear it's kind of going to do the same task that you give it so that's that's when it is useful and i think that's when people get confused that it's yeah you're never going to build a an original 1176 for 300 quid or 400 quid it's just not possible you know so it's, it's compromises and so it's just using the gear just use your ears listen to it does it sound bad probably not does it do the kind of thing it's meant to do for the most part yes is it you know does it do 90 percent of the job yes but the, the the real thing is 10 times the money so is that 10 percent worth 10 times as much in a nutshell and that's another conversation i've had with various people you know it's a really interesting conversation. It sort of brings me on to something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is, um, I, without beating around the bush, is price hiking. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> there are a lot of companies. I not, don't want to get into to talking about anybody specifically necessarily, but there are a lot of. You go on Reverb or you even on Instagram, see people. There's one particular company that I can't even remember the name of it where I see 
I saw, I think, a pair of microphones for sale the other day. And I know that they they post things that are very above market rate. And I had a little guess in my mind of what they I thought that they were going to be worth, knowing what, what they are worth um, in without this sort of blurb that they'd attached to it. Um, and then I guessed what in my head what I thought they were going to be, and then I looked at the price, and it was double what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and it's it's a it's just gobsmacking. I, I you know, the what's your take on it? I I, I mean, it, it, I can understand that there's a place for it, but it seems um, it yeah, seems I mean, baffling to me. <laughs> there's definitely as we've everything, There's two sides to every story, and anyone is entitled to ask for however much they think something is worth to them. That's fine. I guess, like I mentioned earlier, I don't really give opinions too much, but my two cents on it is, I started out the company as a somebody who couldn't really afford the gear that I really wanted when I was younger because it was, you know, back then it was early days of digital, so analog gear was still expensive. It was still hard to achieve. So as things have progressed and I've kind of managed to buy some of this cool stuff, the level at which things have gone up in value just seems to skyrocket in in recent years compared to how it has been i mean i've only been buying and selling for five or six years there's other dealers and sellers out there that have been doing this for 10 20 30 40 years but i we're at such a steep climb in prices which i think was definitely put um was made worse with with covid and stuff because things were people were at home a lot more maybe assessing what gear they had for sale selling stuff they maybe didn't want to sell and more time on your hands, listing things on eBay and reverb, blah, blah, blah. Fast forward a little bit, I feel that there's a bit of a like a fight between reverb and dealers to a certain extent that if Joe Bloggs puts up something for a £1,000, the dealer has to show in a way that there's added value from buying from a dealer, whether they've serviced it, repaired it, ran a cloth over it, just literally bought it and sold it. I guess there has to be a premium because that's the same way that things work in real life with car sales. You know, you buy from a private seller or a dealership. You go to a dealership because you get that added support, blah, blah, blah. So it's a little bit more expensive. But then the next Joe Bloggs comes along and sees that so-and-so seller's got one up at 1,200 quid, not realising that it's a dealer, putting theirs up for 1,200 quid. And it, it kind of keeps on going because... You know, I'm not saying that all dealers want to appear more expensive, but that you have to have a value of that you're adding on things. Is guess what I'm trying to get at. And although I try and keep prices competitive, there's definitely an aspect of I need to make sure that people are seeing the value that's being added and why you buy from a dealer specifically. Um, but yeah, the whole price height thing—it's just got a little bit silly. And yeah, the prices of vintage Neumanns and old Paul Tex and 1176s, I mean, they've they've easily gone up four times the price in two to three years at least. And I just don't think it's fair for people that actually want to use the gear in the first place. Because with some of the old stuff, if there's a reissue like a U87, a vintage U87 these days from the early 70s, late 60s, they're going for three or 4,000. But you could buy an AI brand new for just over 2,000. Is it going to be that different? Probably not, so that doesn't really make much of a difference. But when you start to get in the territory of things that are old and very hard to recreate, like synthesizers, like a, a Jupiter 8 or a CS80, you can't really just recreate one of those very simply. So now they're worth God knows how much. I, I, I don't even look some days. It's it's just 
I will never touch those machines because am I just buying into a, a price hike and all of a sudden something might fall out the back end of it and you know they settle back down again it's as a business it's not a very good investment so it's it's definitely made me very scared in a in a funny kind of way at buying into certain areas of gear these days because it is so inflated and like I said I don't think there's any any one person or any one company to blame I think everybody operates their business differently and I think that's a key thing I take from it it's not about being the cheapest the most expensive if you can cater in that particular area of your business if you are really expensive and you've got buyers for it it's business at the, in, a, in a nutshell it's hard for for buyers to maybe understand that and on the flip side it's also about trying to not look greedy and i think when you do look greedy and there is it's like i think that the 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 dealer you mentioned i think i might know who that is or who, an idea of who you thought that was and <laughs> yeah when things are like literally two, three, four times as much as the current other prices of stuff, that's definitely price hiking because there's got to be people that are thinking, oh, well, you know, mine's maybe not worth five grand, but it's definitely not worth 40. Maybe I'll put it up for 10. And it, it just creates these cycles of possibly misinformation and and reality, I guess, because, it, you know, it's very easy to go on reverb and see what listed prices are at, but it's it's not about that. It's, it's about the sold prices, which can get quite, you know, maybe somebody did buy something for a lot of money by accident, well, not by accident, but thought they needed it for that amount of money for whatever reason. But that's not helping the problem either, is it really? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just musicians and engineers trying to potentially earn a living and, and do what we love. So why does the the tools we need have to become unattainable? You know, that's my two cents anyway. You know, I don't want to digress too much, but it's a shame that things are getting too expensive. I find it fascinating and for me as a consumer it's a balance between you know I I want to you know my my job is to to create great drum tracks for people so I want to do give them the highest quality audio I possibly can within what I can afford so you know I've pushed the boat out a lot and bought some some quite nice stuff I certainly can't afford to to buy a vintage U87 for 4 grand or higher so I have to spend that four grand a bit more wisely. So, you know, for me, it's finding out what those bits of equipment are that do a relatively good job of being quite close to, to what it is without getting involved in, in you know, what we're talking about. So, you know, mm. without buying into, you know, I'd love to have 50, 60 grand and buy a whole load of amazing stuff at a price, at, you know, at the, the price that this stuff seems to be going for. But the reality is that, that we can't and that's reserved for, I, what it seems to be is either private collectors, you know, private studios, or these uh, quite often London-based studios that seem to have a never-ending um, amount of money that they can just buy up this stuff, and um, you know, we're we're left with rackfuls of of copies essentially, which do a, a fantastic job, but you know, when somebody's comparing a studio in London that's got, you know, that spent close to a hundred grand on their their outboard collection versus me as an individual who's who's slowly trying to do it. The, you know, I th- I think people are, are realizing that kind of what we were saying twenty minutes ago, where you know a gear is just gear. I think people do realize that, but you know, I know that I know what these the studios are doing when they want to buy this stuff and and have that initial sort of box tick moment in someone's brain when they're looking at, at you know on a studio website or considering booking a studio. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's very true. It's very true. But it's one of there's also there's not a, a real shortage of some of these things that are so expensive as well, which is also quite baffling. Like take a U forty seven. I'm not specifically sure how many thousands in serial number wise these go up to, but it has to be a, a large amount. So there's only going to be so long that so many people can sell these mics for that much money until they don't start selling. It's kind of what happens with, with housing market and stuff like prices shot up too much. Everyone got a bit scared and doesn't want to buy all of a sudden. So it, it's got that same thing where things settle down. And I just really hope things do settle down because, you know, if your holy grail thing is to buy a U47, then that's great. But I'd also like to think that people use these things still because not not against the collector's market at all because there's definitely choice bits of gear that I'd love to own. If things came across, maybe I would, you know, I don't mix, I don't record, I don't do that stuff. But there's maybe bits where I'd go, do you know what, if I came across a Fender Rhodes, I'd love to keep that. And I'd probably put my hands in my pocket a bit deeper because of that. So that element of it, again, people are more than welcome to ask what they want for stuff and someone's more than welcome to buy for that price if that's what they really want it's uh as, as a whole yeah i think i think things just need to calm down a little bit and i think the greed needs to just disappear a little bit <laughs> because we're all out here trying to make a living absolutely there's no need to be greedy you know you can yeah i think that'll be enough <laughs> <laughs> what would you recommend to people who are listening to this as so relatively inexpensive stalwart gear. So Reslos are a really good example of they they're becoming quite common now, but at a time at a, there was a time 4 or 5 years ago when they were almost um a, kind of an underground secret. So, you know, a bit like they they only cost 200 quid each at that the time that I bought them. And they sound great, and they would be something I recommended to people who asked me about gear. Um, what what are some of the equivalents at the moment that you're seeing that you're either selling or that you would recommend? Uh, so if you're talking, oh, if you're talking mic specifically, I think anything biodynamic is kind of on the rise in terms of what people are asking for. So M160s, M260s, M500s, again another ribbon microphone. Those are really cool, but it's just good that you can keep those going. You can buy one from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, whatever, and still go to somebody like Exordia and keep it going. I think they're always a good buy. Um, outside of that, outboard-wise, I guess it's just learning technically a bit more about what gear does because you could look at something that you really like but can't quite afford and realise that there's another company that, isn't quite as well known that makes something that's very similar i think that some of the joe meat gear is really well regarded because it's it, it uses some really interesting sort of designs and things and surely they would have been sort of the the child of other things greater than itself back in the day so it's i guess you just got to try stuff and i think that's the good point with used gear you can just chop and change things relatively inexpensively in terms of the cost of, of buying something to selling something to buying something you can generally get what you paid for something in most cases and that's one thing we quite like to do is is keep people swapping and changing and, and kind of finding what they actually want because you can't necessarily just go and loan all these bits of kit for free and decide what you want because 
that, I don't think that's really fair on the sellers to just constantly be sending gear out for people to try and never actually buy because that is, <laughs> I imagine that happens a lot when it comes to uh, the main sort of shopfront dealers, you know, the London shopfront dealers and such and, and places like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's just, it's, it's a, again, it's a sustainable way to try things and, you know, keep these things going, especially if, I think the one the the one big shortfall in in this world is is gear maintenance. I guess there is guys that specialise very heavily in certain areas, but there is a big lack of technicians to keep some of this stuff going. And that doesn't just apply to old gear; it applies to new gear. That you know, there's lots of cool companies that come out and then disappear, and you can't just go and send it back to this company because they've they've been bought out by a monster company or they've disappeared because they can't run it anymore. There's there's so many bits of gear out there that are going to need repair. And that is a real shortfall, especially in the UK. Like that, On a daily basis, that is my main struggle, is making sure that I can keep gear well-maintained. I mean, that's, that's part of you know what we offer as a service to sell gear. It has to be working properly. It has to be serviced or repaired where needed. And I'd like to hope that people realise that by buying gear, you're not just going to have trouble-free existence with this gear. You buy a car, it needs a service every year. And I think because it is quite a tough area, people aren't doing it. The amount of gear we get sent in that isn't that hasn't been looked after very well or definitely doesn't sound like it should do. I think it's quite funny when you see people that are arguing about different revisions of 1176 and which one sounds better when probably all of them or most of them are not even in calibration. It's simple <laughs> things like that. It, it genuinely baffles me why people fight over gear like that because, it's all, again, it's all irrelevant, but it's, I think, yeah, you have to look after your kit. So buying right in the first place is definitely a a good foot forward. Like, I'm not going to specifically say warm audio, but gear in that level is that going to be sustainable in terms of being repaired and being usable in 20 30 years time possibly when you start looking at other companies where it's all built by robots definitely not if it's built by a robot it can't be fixed by a human it's it's too small it's too complicated manufacturers won't share the details yeah it's uh it's a scary future for now gear shall we say vintage gear possibly not as long as you can still buy parts it's it's relatively sustainable still, but we need more young guys and girls to get into electronics and want to fix gear because that is the unknown, relatively unknown crisis of the pro audio world and gear world at the moment. That's a really interesting point, and now you're talking about it, it's a it's something I struggle with. You know, I've got bit pieces of my gear that are currently out for repair. I buy and have bought old gear in the past you know lots lots of it and nearly always despite how it's been sold on where where I've bought it obviously this isn't stuff I've bought from you this is stuff I've bought just from that's good e- to hear <laughs> from eBay or Reverb or whatever um even though it says you know w- you know working condition whatever never never is and always needs repairing and I have a, f- a list of repair guys up here in Leeds that I can send stuff to and not one single time have I given something to somebody to repair and had it back in working condition and it lasted more than two or three weeks. Um, it's always been, I can't fix that. Um, I don't know. I don't know, essentially. And it's it's infuriating. Then you, You're completely right. There, there has to be, you know, 
there's one one particular piece of gear I've got at the moment that's out for repair. It's a, a little console, and it's made up of of analog parts. There's no, you know, it's it's not. It's more too complicated for me, but it doesn't look specifically complicated. It just looks like a case of mm. changing some parts out, and you know, two or three guys wouldn't look at it and they because they want to repair guitar amps that are sort of easy to repair and the idea of, of having to troubleshoot a mixing desk <laughs> they just don't want to do it i know and i get it and i tell you who is really flying the flag quite highly for for the change in this is Soundgas. tony's really pushing young sort of apprentices and people out of college and university and stuff to pursue this area in the industry so those guys are really pushing hard for it and that's amazing but it's still relatively closed off in terms of the public getting any benefit from it because I get asked on a daily weekly basis about do you repair microphones do you do this do you this and the answer is no or can you recommend someone it's 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 to be honest no <laughs> I, you know I'm not going to talk too deeply about you know tech problems personally or anything as such but I do think there's a there needs to be a different attitude to the new techs that is like you say that is specifically interested in in this pro end of the market where it isn't just valves and basic components because there is definitely not a shortage of guitar techs or people that know how to restring and set up guitars like that is a very very possibly busy industry i don't know it well but it must be plenty of people to go in your local town you must be able to find someone who can do that but when it comes to this sort of high-end stuff yeah, it's just really lacking and it doesn't help that manufacturers don't always help with schematics and and sharing knowledge but yeah we definitely and I'm, it's something i'm always conscious of and really need to look at ways to find people that are interested in this area because it's the biggest pain for me and i'm sure it's the biggest pain for a lot of studios and especially in, you know we're in the midlands just south of birmingham there is nobody around here at all you go to London, there's definitely more people to, to use, but the good guys are really busy, obviously. And unless you've got working relationships with people, it's hard to get in. So, yeah, if, you know, if you're just a, a guy who's just bought a, a unit that's not working properly and you need to go and find a tech, there is no easy route. You don't just go to Google and go, someone to repair my tube tech EQ. Like, it, it, the facility doesn't exist. So I think there's there's a an idea somewhere growing in the back of my brain that, that needs to think of a way to, to make this not a problem or at least make the access for people to get gear fixed better because, yeah, it's definitely lacking, vastly there's, lacking. There's a, a huge gap in the market for somebody to step in. and uh... Totally. It's one of those. I know very, very good repair guys that would do it really well. But I just think that there's maybe a generational difference between the way that they were brought up or their interests or their ambitions. Like, why is there not someone who's thought about opening a commercial repair facility for this end of the market? You know, it would it would work, but it's the it's finding people that are knowledgeable enough to to A do the work, but also to train up young people to take on the knowledge because a lot of a lot of this knowledge is going to get lost because people do work on their own. They don't share information. It's, you know, why would you tell everybody how to fix something if you could be the guy to fix it? It's job protection, essentially, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it needs to 
something needs to happen. I think colleges and universities, there needs to be an avenue for electronics, not just audio electronics, like just actual electronics, just because it's not a for a craft that is current in terms of how people buy things today. Surely preserving old technologies is as important as creating new opportunities for, you know, current jobs. It's an interesting point that when I speak to old engineers for the podcast and they mention when, you know, I had Ted Fletcher on from who, you know, was involved in the Joe Meek stuff you mentioned earlier, say involved in, it was his his company. Mm. And, you know, these guys talk about in the 50s and 60s when they would take their clock radios and take them apart and put them back together again. You know, nobody's taking apart their Apple Watch and putting it back together again. Well, you can't. <laughs> it's no, not exactly. <laughs> no, it's, that's, that's the, the, the big difference. Like, there's, yeah, technologies change. That's fair enough. But there's still more old stuff around than there is new stuff because of that time that's passed that people have been making this gear for since. So it's, yeah, maybe the, the curiosity's different as well. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm only in my 30s, but when I was a kid, it was definitely all about lego and connects and meccano but it wasn't a set of a dinosaur with instructions on how to build a dinosaur you got a box of bricks and you had to decide what you wanted to do with it and it i don't think there's enough of that in in the modern day like especially for my son like i just i'd love to get him in front of a piano or something very early on for him to appreciate something that's very simple that isn't just uh you know watching Hey Dougie or Peppa Pig on an iPad. You know, it's finding ways to, you know, get interested in using your brain and working things out because that's the fundamentals for learning to fix stuff. It's curiosity and, you know, a blank canvas to work on. It's an interesting reflection of where we're, where we're at and that this generation, probably from the 80s onwards, where it, it ties into the gear, the way that you're talking about a gear going that you know it's some of it's irreparable um and some of the cheaper microphones and the cheaper outboards because it's is built by robots and it's very small and it you literally can't repair it because you, you just buy a new one um and that's the the generation that we've kind of grown up in that we we're unable to do it if there's an issue with your your thing that you've bought whether it's something to do with audio whether it's something just in your house then you send it back and you get a different one and that that is what we grew up doing and actually if you you know i've got a piano in my house and there are when i bought it there was issues with it and actually when i took it apart or i watched you know i had the repairman come over and i watched him taking it apart it's just a big mechanical thing and there was mm. lots of things that i thought you know i i can do this um you know there are some things i'm going to pay him to do because i haven't got the time to do but there are some things that are literally just gluing pieces of felt to other bits. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm capable of that. Why didn't I nev- ever realise that I could I could just do that in the first place? And I'm not yeah. negating the need for for specialist repairmen. I think that almost that's what we're saying needs to happen. We need more of those people who can go, wait a second, I can do that myself. Um, I'm not suggesting that I'm that person because I, I recognise that there's some things on a piano that are easy. I'm just suggesting that there, there are there are people out there who are more than capable of yeah, doing definitely. this stuff and could fill this gap in the market. And we need to encourage that as a, you know, as a generational thing. Well, maybe, you know, looking at 
what is there a lot of on, on social media these days is influencers. Maybe we need a repair influencer. In, uh, talking, you know, off the cuff, but in, a, in the lightest sense, there's lots of things that, as you say, people could easily do themselves, but the, there's no route to, to ha- there's, you know, there's probably people on YouTube and, and other places where they'll show you how they fix something, but, and I'm sure there's other places that teach you basic electronics, but maybe there is something needed to kind of to brush up people at home on what can you do to look after your gear it doesn't have to be a repair you know looking after your gear is preventative maintenance you know it's like putting water in your car or cooling and stuff it's just you know if you didn't put it in it would break and then you'd have to pay a lot of money to get it fixed (laughs) and you could say it's the same with with everything you know especially with gear you need to keep like the amount of studios i've seen as in huge well-known studios and they take photos of their gear and it's caked in dust and i, I did comment once and you know on this particular studio and said that that stuff looks like it needs a clean and the reply was like too busy or something you're thinking <laughs> but if you'd leave that for long enough every pot on that particular unit's going to start crackling and sound like crap and eventually going to need replacing and it, it's, it's just stupid stuff like you know i, I do feel possibly some instagram reels or something coming up shortly about basic studio maintenance because yeah that is that is the step and then maybe that will spur somebody on to to do something because i guess without being going back to myself when i first started out it was my curiosity and gear that has turned this particular thing into a business so who knows maybe originally that could have been me wanting to fix stuff and run a repair company so hopefully there's people out there that that see that there's a massive gap for that, you know, and some of the prices that some places charge, you know, if you thought about earning that as an hourly rate, I'm pretty sure if people knew it would motivate them quite quickly <laughs> to think about whether, shall I turn this into a job? Because when you're talking at £90 an hour, you know, that, that, that could be a very lucrative opportunity for lots of people at the Absolutely. top end, of course. Completely. Well, there you go. I challenge you to it. I'd, I'd engage with that. I want to see some studio. Yeah, I think so. Reels. Yeah, I think it needs doing. I know it's very geeky, but I think that I think there's lots of rubbish and misinformation on those formats. So maybe I'll turn these sort of uh, these things that annoy me into a positive. Maybe that's the best way to do it. You know, and try and hope that other people relate. I guess that's the simple thing, isn't it? I buy gear and sell gear that I like, and people relate to it. So. Maybe I'll try it and we'll see. See if other people <laughs> appreciate the the gesture. <laughs> so where can people what's what's your Instagram handle and what's your website and all that kind of stuff? Where can people find out about you? If you put make noise pro audio in anywhere, you'll find the Instagram. That's all the same. It's just forward slash make noise pro audio. And yeah, hopefully popping up all over your social medias, whether you like it or not, thanks to recent <laughs> algorithm changes. I think that's frustrating that it doesn't always get to the people that you want but hopefully it does get to the people that don't know about us yet and yeah it's just uh keep looking after gear keep giving a shit keep giving good customer service and it's one of those it's a it's a great job to do you meet great people get to play with gear all day long so let's keep it going you've got a week is it a weekly mail out that you do with sort of new arrivals that kind of stuff yeah, it works out roughly weekly, bi-weekly. Uh, so 
as you probably guessed from this, I, I basically do everything day to day by myself. So sometimes it's hard to get everything done, but we try and do weekly, two weekly mail outs with sort of new arrivals. Uh, obviously socials are going to be the, the most direct way. In fact, the website is definitely the most direct way to see what's coming up because the latest stuff is on the homepage. And as people tell me, they sit and refresh it every morning to see what's come up and it's new. So <laughs> if, if more people want to do that, then great. I've got you hooked. So yeah, head to the website. That's probably the easiest way to find everything you need to know. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Smashing. Pleasure. So there we have it. Sam from Make Noise Pro Audio, our new podcast partnership. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree, he's an absolutely lovely chap. Um, and there we go, I've said it again, I nearly always say at the end of these episodes what a lovely person the person I've just spoken to is, but most people are lovely people, and Sam is certainly one of those. So I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you got a good insight. I would certainly recommend heading to Make Noise Pro Audio uh, Instagram, which is forward slash literally just Make Noise Pro Audio. Um, the website is makenoiseproaudio.co.uk. Um, he sends out a mailing list. I think it's every week or every two weeks is what what he said in the episode, Some either one. Um, and he always posts new gear for sale. He's got some really... Uh, one of my favourite things is looking through his Instagram stories when he posts it up because he, he's always putting up whatever new stuff's come in. Um, and it makes me feel happy looking at it and sad that I can't afford it. <laughs> um, but yeah, go, please do go and check that out. Um, I will be back next week with another episode. You can check out all of the stuff that I'm involved with um, at All You Need Is Drums on Instagram or at Joe Montague Drums, um, which is, uh, again, as I mentioned before, my the two sort of sides of what I'm doing now. Um, so I've got the All You Need Is Drums, which is my isolated drum stems, which you've heard in the, the little interims of this, um, and also information about the podcast and stuff to do with Beatles that I love. The at Joe Montague drums is everything session, studio related and the work that I do. So if you're interested in working with me for drums on your songs um, or working together on a project, then give me a, a shout and a follow through that page. My website is allyouneededrums.com. You can find the full archive of isolated drums on there and some more information about me and what I do. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'd like to also say a thank you, as I traditionally do, to Adam Mallet for designing the artwork for this podcast and for my good friend Joe Kane for doing the intro and outro music that I use. Um, thank you very much for listening and supporting this podcast. Um, it feels great to be back and I will be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.